And well, good morning. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Galatians chapter 1, if you don't have one, there should be a, one in the pew back uh, in front of you. So we'll be camping out for just a few minutes in Galatians chapter 1 today. Galatians chapter 1, starting at verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we might have in Christ, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted to the gospel with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Division is rarely productive. I play on a basketball league on Monday nights after Bible, school, or Bible study. Um, and there is an A league that's kind of the best players, a B league, and then a C league. And I'm proud to announce I'm on the C league. But we have a good time, and uh, I played for a couple of seasons. And last year, the team that I was on, it was kind of riddled with conflict. We had like three or four players that were kind of teams in and of themselves. So they would carry up the ball, and if it didn't matter if there were four guys on them, they were going to shoot the ball. And it got ugly pretty quick. There was two members of the team that got into a conflict. One person was kicked off the team or quit. It was just a mess because there was like four different teams on one. And I was surprised this past week was their first week for this year. 
And uh, there was a few people who were added and a few people that were la- that left. And this new team, it was like everybody was passing the ball around. You know, if there was an open guy, they were getting the ball. Everyone was shooting. Everyone was contributing. It was like a real team. But that other team where there was division, it was... It wasn't productivity. The, an evolutionary biologist named Margaret Hefferman uh, in a TED talk uh, talks about, or, or she wasn't an evolutionary biologist. She talks about an evolutionary biologist. And his name was William Muir. And he studied chickens and he wanted to study how productive they were. And for chickens, it's easy to tell how productive they, they are. It's how, much, how many eggs they produce. And so this William Muir did an experiment, and, he, and so he had a control group where he took the chickens and just kind of let them do their thing, let them reproduce naturally and produce eggs, and he counted how many eggs they produced uh, over six generations. He did the same thing with another group, but in this other group, he went and he hand-selected uh, from a different flock some kind of super chickens, the chickens that were the real good egg layers. And so he only allowed them to breed, and he was trying to kind of create this race of super chickens that would produce a lot of eggs. After six generations, he found that the control group, the one that he just kind of let go, they were healthy, they were producing lots of eggs. But for the other group of the super chickens, there was only three left because they had packed each other to death. They'd competed, they'd been divided, And they weren't productive. In a similar way, Paul teaches us in this passage that in order to be an effective church, we need to be a unified church. In order to be an effective church, we need to be a unified church. Paul tells the Galatians the story of his conversion to Christ. He was a devout follower of Judaism. He says he persecuted the church of God. He tried to destroy it and wipe it out. But Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. He revealed himself to him and preached the gospel to him. And then Paul had this ministry, this calling to preach to the Gentiles, those people who were of the nations, those people who were not Jewish. And he says he didn't talk to anyone for a while, but after three years, he finally goes to Jerusalem. He talks to Peter for 15 days. And then 14 years after that, we don't know if that's 14 years after his conversion or 14 years after the three, but sometime after that, he goes back to Jerusalem and he talks to kind of the so-called pillars of the church, Peter, James, uh, and John. And we don't know exactly why he goes there. Uh, some people have suggested it's for, it was for the Jerusalem Council described in Acts 15, given the kind of chronology of what he describes here, that's Uh, Kind of unlikely, but it may have been that he was on a famine relief uh, vision. Uh, In the book of Acts, it's described that the prophet Agabus predicted that there would be a great famine. And there's also a record of Paul going from Antioch, where he was, to Jerusalem to bring an offering to Jerusalem to the church there. So it may be that he's going there to give the offering from the church of Antioch. We don't know for sure. But regardless of the purpose, we do know that he sets up a meeting with Peter, James, and John, and he shares the gospel with them. And the reason he does that, he says, it's in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. He says he preaches the gospel to them in order to make sure that they're not running or had not run in vain. Now, Obviously, this is an athletic image, and it's talking about futility, making sure he's not running 
uh, with no purpose. And usually when we talk about this, about running in vain, it's in the regard to, uh, Paul uses this in regard to salvation, to make sure that he or someone else was not running in vain in the sense of not achieving his salvation or not receiving the gospel in the right way. So it seems on the surface like Paul is kind of questioning his message, questioning his gospel. Like it seems on the surface that he's saying, I went and I told them the gospel to make sure I was on the right track, to make sure I was preaching the true gospel, to make sure my gospel wasn't false. But it's really unlikely that he would say that because throughout the book up to this point, he is very adamant that this gospel, it's not from man, it's from God. It's not something that he received from Peter and James and John. It's something he received from Jesus Christ himself. So it's unlikely that he would be going to them to kind of confirm his message to see if he is wrong because he has the utmost confidence in his message because it was preached to him by Jesus himself. So why does he do that? Why does he say this? What is he getting at here? We also see in this church, in, in, in this passage, that Paul doesn't afford these leaders that much authority. There, there's many statements that he makes where he, he kind of takes them off the pedestal, so to speak, where people thought that they were so uh, kind of the pillars of the church. He kind of deconstructs that. In verse 2, he, set, he says he set out the gospel privately before those who seemed influential. In verse 6, it says... And from those who seemed influential, and then he says, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. And in verse 9, he says that James and Peter and John appeared to be pillars. So if he's not confirming his message to them, if he's not questioning whether his message is wrong, why does he speak to them? And why does he question whether he's running in vain? And I think the reason that he does that is because he's wondering if his message is going to be effective. In other words, he's wondering if there's going to be unity in the church. Because Paul realizes that even if he's preaching the correct gospel, if there's disunity in the church, if the church is not unified, the church is not going to be effective. I mean, imagine how damaging it would have been in the early church where the church was relatively small. And imagine if you have this church split where Paul is over here preaching his gospel, doing his thing, and Peter, James, and John are over here just saying, yeah, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. We, know, we have the true gospel. Imagine the division and harm that that would cause. And for, Peter, for Paul, he realizes that if that's the case, if there's going to be a schism in the church, the work that he's doing is going to be undermined and his effectiveness is going to be hindered. But to Paul's delight, the leaders in Jerusalem recognize the truth of the gospel. It's evidenced first by the fact that they don't require Titus to be circumcised, even though he's uh, a Greek from the nations. And in addition, they recognize the authority of his ministry. In verse 9, they say that they perceived the grace that had been given to me. They give Barnabas and him the right hand of fellowship. And they recognize that the hand of God is on his life. And they recognize that there is a diversity in the midst of a unity. There's recognition that Paul and Peter have different gifts. That Paul has been given this gift to go to the nations. That he has the experiences and the calling of God in his life to go and preach the gospel to the nations. Peter, on, uh, for his part, he has a calling to preach to the 
Jews. And so there's a recognition that Paul has this gift, Peter has a different gift, and they can all agree on that, and they can recognize one another's gifts and still be unified and still carry out their respective ministries. And that's the same way in the body of Christ. We all have different gifts, different skills, different callings of God. But we come together as one body for the good of the gospel and for the body of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. The whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again to the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our presentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Unpresentable parts. Which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body. Giving the greater honor to the part that lacked it. That there may be no division in the body. But that the members may have the same care for one another. Philip Yancey in an article in Christianity Today said this. I, as I read accounts of the New Testament church. No characteristic stands out more sharply than diversity. Beginning with Pentecost, the Christian church dismantled the barriers of gender, race, and social class that had marked Jewish congregations. Paul, who has a, as a rabbi had given thanks daily that he was not born a woman, slave, or Gentile, marveled over the radical change. He said, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Yancey says, one modern Indian pastor told me, most of what happens in Christian churches, including even miracles, can be duplicated in Hindu and Muslim congregations. He says, but in my area, only Christians strive, however ineptly, to mix men and women of different castes, races, and social groups. That's the real miracle. Yancey says, Phillips... Er, er, Diversity complicates rather than simplifies life. Perhaps for this reason, we tend to surround ourselves with people of similar age, economic class, and opinion. Church offers a place where infants and grandparents, unemployed and executives, immigrants and blue bloods can come together. Just yesterday, I sat sandwiched between an elderly man hooked up to a puffing oxygen tank and a breastfeeding baby who grunted loudly and contentedly throughout the sermon. He says, where else can we find that mixture? And so we see early in the church that there's a recognition that there's different gifts, different callings, but one Lord, one Savior. And Paul is very nuanced in his views of the gospel, and he believes in independence and dependence. And so on the one hand, he's independent, and then he says, the gospel came to me not from man, but from God. And there's no one, even if an angel from heaven would come and preach to you a different gospel... Even if I would preach to you a different gospel, it doesn't change the fact of the gospel that has been revealed. And so he's confident in that, that that's independent of human experience. And he's not dependent upon any man to confirm that or or to disprove that. He believes firmly in the gospel. It doesn't depend on man. But he also recognizes that he's dependent. In order for the church to be effective, 
In order for them to reach the lost, they had to be together. They had to believe the same things. They had to be united around the gospel. And he goes so far to say that even if he, if there isn't unity, that he's wasting his time. He's running in vain because his work is going to be undermined. And the same thing is true for those of us who are believers in Jesus. We're independent and we're dependent. We're independent in the sense that we're not dependent upon anybody else for our salvation. There's no one that can change the love of God for us. It's based upon the love of Christ. What he did for us on the cross. And so we don't need anybody to confirm or to, dis- or to disapprove that. But we are dependent upon other people for our life. For our effectiveness in ministry. You know, we could have all the skills in the world. We could have all the resources in the world. And yet if we don't get along. If we're not unified. We're not going to be effective. We need to all be together. Dependent upon one another. If we're going to be effective in our ministry. Throughout the New Testament, Paul and Jesus are adamant about how important unity is in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10 says this, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there not be divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Colossians 3, 12 to 14 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Psalm 133, 1 to 3 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard. On the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing. Life forevermore. And finally Jesus says in John 17. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one just as you father are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Look at what Jesus says here. His prayer is that believers would be unified. And the reason is, is so that the world might believe that you have sent me. That our unity or lack thereof is a testament that either confirms or disproves the message that we proclaim. It's a huge deal in the mind of Jesus. Hayden Robinson, uh, Pastor tells a story uh, about an old uh, criminal criminal asylum where the, you know, the people were insane and they had also uh, committed terrible acts. And he was, uh, this person who went there was a bit surprised that there were only three guards to guard a hundred people. And so they asked the guards, so aren't you afraid of all these a hundred people? I mean, what if they gang up on you? There's only three of you. What would happen? And the guard said something very simple but profound. He said, lunatics never unite. Imagine that three or a hundred men could not overcome three guards because they couldn't get along. They couldn't work together. And the same thing happens for us if we don't get along. We can't even do the simplest things, let alone help usher people into the kingdom of God. 
See, the truth is the world is watching us. The world is keeping an eye on what's happening in the church. And when they get a glimpse of the church, what do they see? Do they see the church and the relationships in the church and say, church is just like the world. The church is just like my broken relationship that I had with my parents growing up. The church is just like the broken relationship I had with my spouse or ex-spouse. It's just like the world around me. It's just, it's just what happens when any group comes together. There's conflict and division. And so when they look at the church, is that what they see? They see it's just like every relationship I ever knew. Or when they look at the church and the relationships in the body of Christ, do they sense that something is different? Do they sense that this is a different type of family? That there's all different types of people who... Uh, from worldly standards would never get together, from different ethnicities, from different socioeconomic classes, rich people, poor people, smart people, not so smart people, businessmen, stay-at-home moms, widows, and they all seem to get along and they still love each other. That's what the church is supposed to project to the world. It's supposed to be a testament to the world that draws them in, that the world will see us And know us by our love for one another. In his sermon entitled Loving Your Enemies, Martin Luther King Jr. told a story about Abraham Lincoln. And uh, he said that as Abraham Lincoln was running for the presidency, there was a man named uh, Mr. Stanton. And Mr. Stanton started to say terrible things about him, uh, going so far to mock his appearance saying, you don't want a tall, lanky, ignorant man like this as the president of the United States. And yet, as we know, Abraham Lincoln was eventually elected. And after he was elected, there came a time to choose who would be his secretary of war. He looked across the nation, and he decided to choose a man by the name of Mr. Stanton. When Abraham Lincoln stood and told his advisors this and mentioned it to them, They said, Mr. Lincoln, are you a fool? Do you know what Mr. Stanton has been saying about you? Do you know what he's done or tried to do to you? Do you know that he's tried to defeat you on every hand? Do you know that, Lincoln? Did you read all of those statements that were made about you? Abraham Lincoln stood before the advisors around him and said, Oh yeah, I know about it. I read about it. I've heard about it myself. But after looking over the country, I find that he's the best man for the job. Mr. Stanton went on to become the Secretary of War and later after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And if you go to Washington, you will discover one of the greatest words or statements ever made about Abraham Lincoln was made by Stanton. His statement, one of his statements was, now he belongs to the ages. And he went on to say a number of Amazing things about the character of Lincoln and his stature as a man. Luther goes on to say, if Abraham Lincoln had hated Stan and if Abraham Lincoln had answered everything Stanton had said, Abraham Lincoln would not have transformed and redeemed Stanton. Stanton wouldn't have gone to his grave hating Lincoln and Lincoln would have gone to his grave hating Stanton. But through the power of love, Abraham Lincoln was able to redeem Stanton. That's our calling as a church to be have such a loving atmosphere that we draw people in. And when they experience that Christian community, it changes them, transforms them. 
And I'll admit that's not easy to do. That's difficult to do. Uh, Bishop Joseph McKinney once said this, anyone can love the ideal church, but the challenge is to love the real church. Anyone can love the ideal church, but the challenge is to love the real church. You know, because the ideal church is a place where everyone's loving, everyone gets along, but the real church is a place where there's sometimes conflict, where sometimes people we don't get along with. That's the real church. And so, do we love God's real church? Not what we hope it might be. If we love the ideal church, then we'll be perpetually looking for the perfect Christian community. You know, we'll look for a community, you know, here or somewhere else, and then when we don't find it, we'll move to another place. You won't find it there, you move to another place, because we're looking for an ideal that doesn't exist. Because the real church is messy. It's not easy to love people who can sometimes get on our nerves or be difficult. But that's our calling. It's a calling to love all in our community. To be unified. And so the question I have for us to consider is, do we love God's church? The real church. The church that's broken. The church that's messy. The church that's raw. Ugly. We don't need other people for our salvation. That's paid for by the blood of Christ. But if we're going to be effective, if we're going to live lives of influence, we need everybody. In order to be effective church, we need to be a unified church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for dying on the cross and showing us your love on the cross. That because of you, we can form a community, a community that's not based upon any worldly status, but based upon your love and based upon your blood. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that we're not dependent upon uh, other people for our salvation, that you've purchased our salvation with your blood. There's nothing that can change that. But also we acknowledge that we need each and every one of us if we're going to be effective in this neighborhood if we're going to be effective in our world. We need all of us to unite together to be the body of Christ. Lord, I pray that as a church we would be unified. Lord, I pray that we would put aside anything that would keep us apart and that we would be focused upon you and your mission. And Lord, as we do that, Lord, we pray that we would be effective in our neighborhood. That we would be able to reach out with love and grace to those in our community. And that they would find your life. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.